Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be talking about immigration. We'll be reading from one of the articles on my site, thegordianknot.org. It's titled, Immigration, Imagining a Market System. Let's jump right in. At the Gordian Knot, we look for issues fraught with problems which can be solved simply by heading straight for more obvious answers, which somehow get ignored. What better topic than immigration? Our system is, and has always been, an absolute mess. Fortunately, we no longer let people in based on what race they are. And another spot of sunshine, there are no longer riots and mobs protesting Catholics arriving on our shores. Indeed, all of this is a cause for at least some optimism. After that embarrassing period of history, our nation started to operate a per-nation cap in a token attempt at fairness. The cap is essentially the same for giant nations like China and India, and little nations like Luxembourg, and even local allies like Canada and Mexico. Last time I looked, the waiting time to enter the U.S. for children of U.S. citizens who recently immigrated was over 90 years. I'm not sure if the Department of Immigration is aware of how children work, but I have heard that this can actually be enough time for them to grow old and die. Let's start by addressing the many good things immigration can bring us if the system functioned well. Then we will honestly examine the downsides. With everything on the table, a new system will be presented that will maximize everything we like and try to carve out as much of the things that we don't like as possible. If we reach the end, which I think we will this episode, we're going to go over a few questions and objections. And if you have any other questions and objections, email me with that and really anything else at uh, thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. So here's a list of things which are good that we get from immigration. And these are under the title Economic Impacts. Point one. 45% of Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants or their children. Also, first-generation immigrants contribute over $2 trillion towards U.S. GDP. Next, immigrants are more likely than natives to be net tax payers. Also, immigrants are more than twice as likely to start a business as the native population. And finally... There's much evidence to show that there's an increase in productivity in the labor market because immigrants tend to bring complementary skills. As for a social impact, immigrants have a lower crime rate than native-born population. They also have a lower divorce rate than natives. Immigration keeps the U.S. population from aging and shrinking, something that's happening in pretty much every other developed country in the world. And finally, immigrants bring new foods, new cultures, and new ideas to our civilization. Without immigrants coming to our nation, we would be much poorer. We would have more crime per capita. And, like most of Europe, we would have a rapidly aging population in decline each year. Anyone who has worked side-by-side with immigrants knows these hardworking people often have a complementary skill set to our own. The grit and determination it takes to leave your own country and set up a whole new life is a fantastic screening process for new citizens or workers. It's no wonder the U.S., a nation of immigrants, is such a wealthy and powerful force in the world. Here's why immigrants are bad. Economic impact. Supply shocks, particularly in low-skilled labor markets, can depress native wages. The population increase can create infrastructure strain on things like schools and roads. 
Those who are sick or disabled may um, come here in order to use our generous welfare while not paying into the system. And finally, the social impact. These people are leaving their nation for a reason. We don't want corruption, socialism, or lack of morality that could have destroyed or damaged their nation to come into ours. Next, they don't speak our language. Finally, they don't always assimilate into our culture. So, not all of these, I think, are massive problems, but these certainly are the ones which seem to be most salient. Now, supply shocks are a real problem in certain areas. No bones about it. This can be painful for current native workers. These workers bear all of the cost in the form of lower wages, employment, worsened working conditions, or reduced hours. The rest of our nation benefits from lower prices. There is a real fairness problem here that a better system ought to remedy. Considering immigrants are better taxpayers than natives, I think that arguments from infrastructure cost or welfare scamming are weak. That said, the latter does, does need to be better policed. Just because on average they are less likely to abuse the system doesn't mean that there is no need to take pre uh, preventative steps to avoid such abuse. The culture of immigrants is a real concern. If their values cause the collapse of a nation that they are going to replicate in our nation, then this would be a valid fear. In general, it seems that immigrants are at least as morally upright as the current population. If anything, their bravery in leaving their place of origin and their lower crime rate, despite a younger average age, and their optimism and entrepreneurial spirits, coupled with their lower divorce rates, all indicate that immigrants, on average, are more virtuous than the native population. However, virtuous people can still have stupid and destructive ideas. To sum up, the people probably aren't the problem, but yes, the ideas they hold might be. I never understood why people were upset with immigrants not learning our language. How on earth does that affect you? If you went to a foreign nation, you too would struggle with their language and prefer your own. If you have a problem with our government funding ESL programs, then this is a more legitimate concern. I may argue such programs are very cheap and likely to pay for themselves in the form of higher productivity for those people who can later better enter our workforce. Nevertheless, yes, this is a cost footed by taxpayers in general and a benefit that only goes to immigrants. Finally, we reach the, you know, I'm going to throw in a note right there. I, I don't think this this type of concern that immigrants receive um, government-funded programs, that's an issue of fairness. If you hold that, um, that concern, I don't think that that disproves um, the thesis that immigrants are good for our country. I think instead that would point to maybe something like this. Immigrants ought to foot the bill for the services which they alone consume. And I think that that's, that's a fair position to hold. All right, moving on. Finally, we reach the assimilation question. France truly has an assimilation problem. There are no-go zones in France where Sharia law is in place, and there are reports of cops getting burned alive in their police cars. It is totally wrong to lose sovereign control of a section of your nation. However, in the U.S., we have things like Chinatown and Amish country, where American law is still in place. It is common to find neighborhoods that are predominantly Latino, and that, too, is just fine. In the early days of our nation, we had Italian, Irish, Polish, and German neighborhoods. If immigrants choose to retain their culture by living in community, that's not a problem. 
That said, if the culture involves ignoring our laws, killing our cops, or seizing control of land from the legitimate jurisdiction um, of a local government, then this becomes very wrong. So the bottom line, assimilation to our laws and general cultural norms is necessary, but assimilation to the rest of our culture is certainly discretionary. So here's my proposed solution, and we'll be covering a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of facts and figurage um, prior to presenting it. First, in a global poll, which is a number of years um, old now at this point, so I'd have to track down something new. Nevertheless, I think it proves my point. People around the world were asked if they would immigrate to America if given the chance. Of those asked, an estimated 700 million people would say yes. And of those who said yes, 100 million of them said that they have the resources to do so. And again, they didn't actually poll that many people, but they took a representative sample and extrapolated it out. Anyways, I think even the most open border fanatics would agree it would be impossible to allow everybody who wants to come in and has the ability to come in, again, 100 million people, to come in all at once. Remember, our nation currently has the infrastructure, jobs, and social safety nets in place to support approximately 330 million people. Letting in 100 million people at once would balloon our population by almost 30%, adding significant strain to these systems. So we are left with a problem. How do we choose who comes in? Currently, it has a lot to do with family relations. However, due to caps being the same for each nation, ease of entry has a lot more to do with the population of your nation, and this seems a little bit arbitrary. Here's what I propose. First off, we want the best immigrants. This means those mix of factors like being entrepreneurial, hardworking, law-abiding ought to determine if they come in. These factors are the reason we like immigrants so much in the first place. So let's get more of that. So we start by making an immigrant scorecard, which will be filled out as we track the outcomes of various immigrant groups living in our nation. The scorecard for each national group would include things like net taxes paid, crime rates, divorce rates, average wages, entrepreneurial activity, and dare I say it, a basic grasp of economics or historically American civic values. So let's say immigrants from Nigeria turn out to be excellent on all measures, and immigrants from, say, Colombia, which is currently the murder capital of the world, the, uh, end up murdering lots of people. This would cause the cap for the Nigerians to rise dramatically, and the cap for the Colombians to fall. Sorry, Colombians. This is how the relative amount of immigrants groups would be decided. The total caps will, will compare the average scorecard of all immigrants to the same scorecard if applied to the native population. If, on average, immigrants are less successful than natives, we don't want as many. Therefore, we will reduce the cap and only take the best ones, so that each new addition to our nation is a benefit. If immigrants continue to outperform natives, the cap will continue to increase relative to the differences between the two scorecards. Again, the scorecard applied to the given immigrant group and the scorecard um, compared to our control group, which is the native population. So I have heard objections to systems like this accusing the process of being racist. But no, this has literally nothing to do with race. 
If a nation sends us excellent immigrants, regardless of whether they are black, white, or even green, we want more of them. If we are sent bad immigrants, then we want less of them. Race never enters the calculation. But maybe for the first time, common sense would. If you think such a fair and meritocratic system will end up benefiting one race over another, may I suggest that you are the racist. With this system, we don't need to ever figure out how many total immigrants we need. We begin with a cap that is in proportion to the population of each nation. The sum of these caps will equal our current immigration numbers. If a nation outperforms the average by, say, 10% on the scorecard, their cap increases by 10%. Likewise, if a nation underperformed by 50%, their cap is slashed in half. With time, those nations which always send excellent immigrants will have ever-growing caps, and those who underperform will send fewer immigrants. I suggested a simple formula for changes in cap size, but we could imagine making a formula that would also look at the median outcomes or maybe the tail events. We could look at projected trends over time in each scorecard category and more. Furthermore, cutoffs could be in place for scores that are below a minimum. For instance, if these Colombians rank at the top of every metric but just can't kick that nasty murdering habit, their high average score might not reflect our willingness to have more of them enter the nation. A possible rule could be that the cap will only be able to increase if the average crime rate is less than or equal to the native crime rate when demographics are held constant. I would even support direct voting for dictating which categories ought to be weighted higher or lower. After all, the American people should have a direct voice in who comes in to live in their society. All of this is the supply side of the equation, but the plan does not end there. These slots are not given away. Instead, they are sold. The price will be determined by the demand to enter the U.S. and the supply of the spots, which is determined in the way sketched out beforehand. Each market will be unique to that nation. We will likely choose to break the market into sub-markets for citizenship and for guest worker status, with each having a unique cap. And obviously, the caps will remain unlimited for those who legitimately are seeking asylum, and those vulnerable groups will not be charged to enter. Refugees will likewise remain in a different category, which isn't sub subject to the market that we're laying out. So, why would we charge these people for entry? Well, first off, we as a nation built all of the infrastructure, wrote the laws, paid generations of tax bills, crafted the culture, fought for independence, started and staffed our businesses, and created our great wealth. People who enter the U.S. as immigrants enjoy the fruits of generations of labor from day one. A price to immigrate, either as a guest worker or a citizen, will represent paying back some of what will, they will immediately benefit from. Furthermore, there are real costs that need to be paid, like English as a second language programs, safe transport through the border, vetting processes, paperwork and processing, tracking outcomes for the scorecard, running the immigration marketplace, and even compensating workers subject to acute labor supply shocks. So how much should they be charged? Well, one way of estimating what would be um, the price would be looking at the current black market price for illegal immigration. 
Currently, immigrants are paying coyotes to smuggle them over the border. And here are some average prices, as best as I could gather. In Mexico, the price is $4,000 to $9,000. Most Central American com- uh, countries are $7,000 to $19,000. In Asia, it's $27,000 to $75,000. From Europe, it's $5,000 to $8,000. Now remember, these coyotes often double as human sex traffickers. On the Mexican border, it has been estimated that one in three women who illegally cross the border will be raped. I heard a story of one woman who paid $18,500 in smuggling fees, which is a sum that's not entirely out of the ordinary, to come from Honduras. She ended up spending years in a Mexican brothel before finally getting to the U.S. Prices to immigrate into the U.S. are already being paid. The problem is they're being paid to the worst types of degenerate human filth imaginable. It's about time immigrants can pay for a legitimate service to transport and integrate them into the U.S. safely and respectfully. We're collecting, uh, we're collecting, they can demonstrate, we're collectively, they can demonstrate their hard work and civic character, um, and they can then enter in even greater numbers. Let's jump right into the questions and objections. First question, will this system result in more or less immigration? The answer is, we don't know for sure. Um, Based on the formula for increasing and decreasing caps, it could go either way. That said, it looks almost certain that total numbers would rise, at least at this time. Even if some caps grow, this doesn't mean all of the spots will be purchased. I would suggest we maintain at least enough open and low price spots starting with the highest scoring nation, that our population age stays reasonably young and our population size remains stable or growing. As far as an upper limit, I see no need to impose one because the system described ensures each immigrant on average increases the overall success of our nation as described by the scorecard categories. Furthermore, if demand were super high, the price per immigrant would be high enough to fund a robust vetting process that would further guarantee excellent new citizens or workers. Next question. How would the workers who experienced a supply shock be compensated? Answer. If time series data shows that in a given labor market, compensation drops by, let's say, over 10% relative to its trend, the income from the immigration market that relates to the local supply shock will be used to fund a tax credit for those workers who saw their compensation fall until that time that wages have been stable for three years. Of course, these numbers could be be adjusted, I can't say that word, Um, but that would be the general flavor of such a solution. Question. How does this system keep bad immigrants or criminals out? It seems like a terrible person could just pay their way in. Answer. In this market, is this market system perfect? No, but it's certainly better than what we have right now. Because right now, that terrible person can just walk in after some paperwork, or even illegally. In this system, if a nation continually sent criminal immigrants, for example, in the following year, less will be allowed. The ones who are allowed later on will face a higher price because the supply of spots has been reduced. This higher price can fund better vetting to remove potentially problematic people and better integrate those who pass the vetting process. If this is successful in increasing the score of that group, then in subsequent years, 
more people from that nation will be allowed in until the number reaches some sort of equilibrium. Next question. If the cap starts as a percentage of the nation's population, doesn't that mean that Chinese people will be able to arrive in massive quantities? Yes, and if they are good immigrants, then we'll be happy to have them, and we'll want even more. If they are bad immigrants, then we will get less of them, and they will face a higher price to come here. All nations will be given an equal shot at proving that they are going to be great Americans. The exception would be if we had reason to believe that they were coming for nefarious purposes. For example, if the Soviet Union were still around, we might take steps to limit or exclude them since they are geopolit geopolitical enemies which could be sending moles, spies, or sleeper cells. However, absent national security concerns, the system will remain strictly meritocratic. Next question. What about all of the illegal immigrants in the nation now? Answer. The absolute first step is sealing our borders. The next step is offering, and I know this is controversial, a one-time amnesty for all of those here illegally. But this is on the condition that they must go through the process of becoming either a citizen or a guest worker. In both cases, they will be required to pay the market price, any taxes that were evaded, and a large punitive fine for breaking our laws. This payment will come in the form of a lump sum or a greater tax bill until the sum is paid off. If they refuse to do so, they will be deported to their nation of origin. I see no other practical way of dealing with this issue. Future illegal immigrants will simply be deported and have their assets seized because, again, for the first time, there will be a legal market where they could have purchased a, a spot and been guaranteed safe entrance. Next question, how much money will this market generate per year? Well, it's hard to say, but a good estimate would be around $40 billion a year. That said, there would be an immediate windfall profit from the current illegal population, all of whom will be paying for citizen, uh, citizenship or worker status upon the amnesty. $40 billion is greater than the economic output of Vermont and Wyoming. Now, I estimate this based on the, the black market cost, based on um, overall immigration trends. Not wedded to that number, but I think it's a pretty good ballpark estimate. Objection. The formula you suggest will be hijacked by the left to make, the, um, to make and heavily overweight categories like how often they become transsexual or whether they use too much carbon, things like that. Answer. Having democratic votes as to which category ought to be given that weight will at least ensure that all people have their voices heard. Even if the radical left could put categories like this into the formula, the American people would get to determine their relative weight. If the people as a whole make the wrong decisions, then they've made their bed and now they have to sleep in it. Next answer. I agree this is a legitimate fear. Making a strong system from the start and safeguarding the system by making a constitutional amendment would be the ideal method. Let's put something in. Just to clarify, um, I, I think a key part of this measure is to allow a popular level vote about what the weighting to the categories would be. So this might look like um, the next presidential election would also include a ballot initiative where the different categories are proposed, like crime rate, divorce rate, um, 
you know, rate of uh, government welfare use, things like that. And you could assign so many points, say 100 points across these, so that each citizen could say what is most important for them when it comes to the vetting process. Then I think it goes pretty far to deal with this critique that, hey, if about half the nation has political um, views which are contrary to your own, um, well, I, I guess we're just going to get a blend um, of the middle. And um, the only way to fix that would be to continue to increase the virtue of the population as a whole, which ought to be a mission that we have all the time. Um, right now, the choice of who gets to come into the nation and who does not is not in the hands of the people, but only in the form of um, uh, only in the hands of the administrative state. And I don't think that's that's necessarily preferable in this particular case. All right, next question. How could a lot of these immigrants afford this cost? Well, the answer is either they save up or they receive charity or they take a loan. Now, what bank wouldn't make a loan to finance such an investment? Immigrants oftentimes make many times more money in the U.S. than they would ever make in their home nation. The payoff for the loan would be very prompt and the risk to the bank would be very low. This cost acts as a great local screening process even before the immigrants reach the U.S. The need to save selects for people with self-discipline. Charity selects for people who are likable and likely to be successful as judged by their patrons. And banks and other lenders select for people with a low risk of failure when they reach our shores. Another answer, high prices are already paid in the black market. This market offers much more value and much less risk to these immigrants and also to the local population who now gets a, um, a vetted set of immigrants instead of just anybody who can enter. Next answer, a market is set up for each nation. This means that poor sub-Saharan Africans are not competing with rich citizens from Singapore. I would expect to see radical, radically different prices that reflect the buying power of each population. Next question. What if someone migrates from a nation with an expensive market to one with a cheap one where, and then tries to immigrate from there? For instance, that person from Singapore gets citizenship from the Congo and applies in this market. Well, a possible solution could be to require that the person purchasing in a given market has been the resident of that nation for a set number of years. This doesn't seem like too hard of a problem to solve, nor would it be catastrophic if a few people did, in fact, perform this maneuver. Next question. Currently, there is a preference for bringing in relatives of current immigrants. Would this continue under your market system? There would be a transition period where spouses and children would be allowed in without a cap, but would still be subject to some payment for those who could afford it, certainly. After this, if a family wants to come to the U.S. together, they would simply buy enough slots to do so. No longer will families be separated by paperwork. Either the family's, uh, family sees they can afford to immigrate, or they can't. If one member wants to come over first and then fund the rest of the family's immigration, then they can be certain that upon payment of the market price, their family will indeed receive safe transport and possibly even assimilation services. And by the way, that's a huge upgrade to today, where if you actually went through the entire waiting list, um, what did I cite earlier, 90 years to get children in? Next question. 
wouldn't this deplete other nations of their best people? Well, the answer is it's up to people in each nation to judge whether the responsibility to their own nation is such that they ought to stay. Certainly, people have an obligation to their nation of origin. However, making those judgments is not our responsibility. Our task is to promote the flourishing of our own nation and all who come to our shores. Also, oftentimes money is sent back home from U.S. immigrants, and it does wonders for their original nations. Furthermore, there is some research to suggest that growth rates in both nations seem to rise as immigration rises. This could be because it sorts out a labor imbalance, or maybe it has to do with those payments. Another answer is, economic growth is not a zero-sum game. If people's talents can create more value in our nation than theirs, this spills over to the whole world. A growing U.S. economy draws up all economies with it, including those nations that would be sending their immigrants. And finally, um, the current system has similar problems. Next question. Wow, there's a lot of question and answers. I like this. If people can buy a slot to come to our nation from a particular nation, does this mean that U.S. citizens can sell their citizenship and trade places with somebody? Can we sell our citizenship at the market price? <laughs> well, from a purely economic perspective, a market like this would work to match citizens to nations very effectively. That said, I would prohibit this, or at very least I would highly discourage it. This views citizenship as a purely economic contract-based arrangement, which it is not. Historically, the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, has been interpreted to extend to one's nation. Treating one's citizenship as simply a financial asset would be a sin against piety in the same way a child trying to sell his place in a family would thereby disrespect his family. If you're wondering if this works in the other direction and prohibits running a market as I described, it would not. This market described would be the family equivalent of adoption or foster care, both of which are an extension of family and not a spurning of it. Okay, behold, that is my, um, that's my idea for redoing the immigration market. Um, I think that fixes a lot of funding issues. I think that gives us uh, strong tools to select for the best immigrants, which is great. Um, it guarantees that people can plan for and uh, purchase slots to enter our nation um, at a given, uh, given time of their choosing. Um, and one argument that really should not be ignored is by doing this, we are crowding out the extraordinarily evil black market, which um, does horrendous, awful things to immigrants um, that should not be ignored. So any chance to crush the coyotes and the human human traffickers um, should be taken. I think if something like this was in place, securing the borders would be a lot less contentious. Instead, we would say um, that these people are, are skipping a legitimate and fair system, as opposed to the current conception, which is people who illegally immigrate are um, avoiding a, a systemically unfair uh, system. I think that's, that would quell a lot of the concerns. All right, well, let's move on to the mailbag. First question. Um, this one is uh, it's pretty simple. It just is asking, do Americans eat enough beans? Um, I'd say the answer to that is a resounding no. Um, a lot of other cultures do eat a ton of beans. You can think of uh, our neighbors uh, to the south in Mexico. They eat a ton of them, and for good reason. They can be delicious. They are appallingly cheap. 
and they have a lot of um lot of uh of protein since they're what are they are they pulses legumes i don't know i'm bank blanking on that but they're very good for you lots of soluble fiber um i guess the only downside to a bean is the outside of it um has something on there but basically is difficult to digest and is actually an anti-nutrient and can stop you from absorbing, I believe, uh, certain types of minerals. However, most people soak the beans first, and that has some type of effect where it removes that. Um, nevertheless, they're pretty darn healthy for you. Most other cultures uh, snap them up all the time. And yeah, they probably should be more in the American diet. Um, wonderful question, of course. And we do answer any question you possibly can imagine, um, as will be evidenced by the next question. Um, from the same person, actually. And this is, um, do wild pigs really affect the environment more adversely than cattle? I wish I was an expert on this one. Um, so I'm just going to put out a few general things. One is, to my knowledge, wild pigs, um, they, they root so they can actually dig up roots, snack on them. So that's going to affect whatever the, um, the, uh, the flora is in that environment a lot differently than, than cattle. Um, so different types of, of grazers do different things. For instance, I believe it's goats. They eat grass all the way to pretty much the dirt, whereas cows do not. So that can affect what kind of species um, predominant, predominant, yeah, become popular. Predominate. There you go. That's the word I was looking for um, in a given um, grassland. Um, and then another thing I'd just like to point out is w when we're dealing with, um, you know, cattle, goats, sheep, pigs, whatever, we have to distinguish between whether or not there's a predator in the system because that heavily affects their grazing pattern. So I would need that to fully answer the question. I assume cattle would not. Um, but if the question is more broad and just talking about bovine-like creatures or buffalo, things like that, and trying to compare um, compare the two, uh, that's certainly an important factor. Um, they basically, they spread out a lot more and they eat individual patches of grass, um, less if, uh, there's no, if there's no predator and then they have to group tighter and they more aggressively graze individual areas if there is a predator. Um, so I would assume that the wild pigs, depending on their environment, would have predators, though not in all, so we would need to know that to answer the question fully. And um, we're just going to go ahead and assume that the cattle do not. Um, that said, there's plenty of areas where wolves can still um, kill calves and whatnot. So that, that, that might be an effect. Oh, my goodness. This is a tough one indeed, partially because it draws us to another problem. And that's in ecology. There's a question of which state is really preferable because – it's not that, that it will degrade the environment or make the environment worse to have a given species in it. N not necessarily, because we would have to say that one of the, the equilibrium states for that environment is objectively better than the other. And without some type of anthropocentric um, orientation of it, I don't think that we can say that, um, at least not consistently. So I think that if, um, if there are two systems um, with a similar flora, one had cattle introduced and one had wild pigs introduced, 
that will make them end up being very different. And you're going to have different animals coming into the area. You're going to have different plants. Um, all sorts of things are going to change. But I wouldn't say one of those is worse for the environment. One is, is better. Those are just different environments. Um, which leads us to um, what I just referenced is, does it have a human-based orientation? Cattle typically do. We, we have cattle um, for milk and we have them for meat. So in that respect, I would say that the environment is better used when there's a, um, there's a cattle-type um, um, ecosystem because we can benefit, whereas with the, with the wild pigs, maybe we don't benefit from that one, though I can imagine scenarios that we could, maybe for sport hunting, for example. Um, there you go. I think I answered the question. If we're talking about um, uh, comparing those two, I'm picking cattle um, as the less environmentally destructive because I judge environments um, always with an eye to its influence on mankind because we are the keepers, the tillers, and the rulers of our earth, and cattle are a delicious food source for us. Um, you know, I, it calls to mind the great chain of being where we, we are the high priests of, of all material creation. And when we take minerals, and, and, or if we see minerals being drawn up into a plant, then it went from one lower level, a mineral, to a higher level, a plant. Then when it's eaten by cattle, um, it moves yet higher. That same mineral, that same basic matter is now joined to something much higher. It's, it's part of an animal. It's an amazing, um, incredible creature. Then when we eat it, it's transferred all the way up to the height of material creation. It's, it's joined um, uh, into, into a person. Uh, that's about as much as you could ever ask for if you're, if you're a mineral. And then when we, having, having eaten this, give praise to God, that's us drawing all of material creation into the, into the joint praise of our creator. Um, so I think that's something to consider. Maybe we can get more into um, theological and the, the intersection of theology and uh, environmentalism. And I might have my, my wife on for that podcast. She is, a, um, uh, she is a biology professor and teaches ecology, all sorts of good stuff like that. I'm sure she would have some great perspectives and could tell you much more about animals, plants, and such likes. All right, what's the next question? Next question is, what are your thoughts on churches flying the rainbow flag? Well, that is very simple. You typically see this um, with Protestant churches, though I'm sure there are very much misguided Catholic churches who do the same. Basically, when I see a church with a rainbow flag, I think of it as a conquered church. It was a Christian church, and now it's been conquered by the religion of leftism. It's, it's like a, an embassy that's been taken over, and their flag has been taken down, and whatever uh, conquering force has now raised their own. So I see it as a symbol of defeat. Um, we should be opposing um, all that is wrong in the culture. We should certainly not be adopting their symbols that in no way is this a uh, flag of tolerance, nor is it um, a sign that we are somehow uh, more morally advanced, uh, quite to the contrary. So I, I, always, I always pity those churches because they've 
bought into the lies of leftism, and particularly in sexual ethics. So that is a terrible thing. If you see a, your church putting up a rainbow flag, take it down immediately um, and say mean things to whoever was doing it. All right. I think we'll call it a day there. Um, not entirely sure what the next episode is going to be. We'll see what strikes my fancy. But I am in dialogue with a fellow who might be coming on as a special guest. Um, we'll be talking about um, the Catholic view of wealth and what the Catholic Church might, might suggest is the government's role in possible taxing, redistribution schemes. And I don't think we have identical opinions on this. Uh, certainly we don't. But that's what's going to make it an interesting and hopefully productive dialogue. Um, it's very rare to find people who know a, at least a passing amount about economics and uh, are rooted in, in uh, Catholic theology. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough find indeed. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in either one of them. But at, at very least, I think I'm in the middle of that Venn diagram to some extent. Um, it seems that the person that I'm talking to is more theological in his in his leanings. He's a catechist at his local church, and he has a, a really good understanding of a lot of papal encyclicals and magisterial teachings on the topic. And we might kind of take a more personal, um, more personal tact and talk about how the teachings of the church relate to us in our direct personal actions and what to do with our excess wealth. So I hope you guys will enjoy that episode, um, and we'll see if we can get that arranged. Uh, if you have a, um, a particular topic that you know a lot about, or if you think that you could make a good uh, uh, Cutting the Gordian Knot guest, then send me an email. Tell me what you'd be seeking to talk about, and I, I certainly can't promise that I can have you on as a guest, but um, I'll certainly, uh, certainly review it and let you know. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, and if you have friends, and if you like sharing, share it with your friends. And if you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies, and I'll see you next time.